Hey folks, thank you for joining us online. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, if, you, uh, if you had been in here with us the last few minutes, we've been talking presidential debate and football and famous theologians. And uh, it's now time uh, to talk about something uh, edifying at least. And so that's good. Um, we're, we're glad that you're joining us, whether you're joining us live on one of our streaming platforms or watching this later. Uh, we're grateful to have all these opportunities. We do want to say, uh, those of you that are here or, or uh, are going to watch this later, our media team continues to work on ways to make th this and uh, sermons more accessible uh, to people. And so we're now uh, doing that through uh, varying podcast streams. People can go, where can they go to get that stuff? Namsriver.com slash listen. So get to Namsriver.com slash listen. And if you do podcasts and you listen to these things, download them from uh, varying websites. I even think through Apple and Amazon and all the places where you can get podcasts, you're now going to be able to get what we're doing here. Um, so, so if you've got a commute into work or if you're going sitting somewhere and you like to listen to those things, uh, and you miss a Sunday or miss a Wednesday, uh, those will all be there now. Uh, and so thanks to the great work of our media team, because in the, in the midst of COVID, this is uh, always uh, any, any way that we can uh, make our um, preaching and teaching more accessible, we, we want to be able to do. So let me open us in prayer, and then we're going to talk about uh, some basic hermeneutic principles tonight. I know that's a big word. I'm going to define it here in a minute. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us. Um, I know in, uh, we, we've joked a little bit uh, tonight just about um, what, we, what many of us witnessed as far as presidential debate last night. And if anything, uh, I walk away from that grateful that um, no matter who's the president of the United States, uh, you are on your throne and you are the, one, you're the only one who will rule and reign uh, forever, and uh, you are uh, all good, and we are, we are grateful for that goodness, and uh, we, we pray, come Lord Jesus, uh, in, the midst of, in the midst of turmoil. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us as we think about uh, good ways to read and study the Bible tonight, as we begin to take this dive uh, into uh, practicing good uh, Bible study and, and how, we, how we should find meaning in the text. Uh, would, you, would you challenge our, our, the way that we've, already, that we've always done it, the way maybe we're comfortable doing it? Uh, because I, I would pray that in each and every one of our hearts tonight, God, would be the desire um, not for the Bible to mean what we want it to mean or not even for the Bible to mean what we think it means, but for us um, to as best as we can come to a true and right meaning uh, of the scriptures. And so would you help us and encourage us tonight in that pursuit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is week three of Bible Intake, where we're talking about reading and studying and hearing the Bible. And the first two weeks, uh, we did some history. And then uh, last week, we did some doctrine. I start in those places um, because it's helpful to know where you've come from. And uh, it's also helpful to have that overview as we did last week. Uh, even though I got home, my, my wife was at home and she watched online and said, uh, I got home and I think the first thing she said to me was, that was a little much tonight. I went, so she's always a good check on me for when I go a little too fast or 
um, uh, open the fire hose a little too wide, you know. And so if you felt that same way last week, I apologize to you. Uh, I would invite you the next time I teach on the doctrine of the Bible uh, in, uh, in a, through a whole equipped semester to come in there because I do slow down greatly. And, um, well, I slow down a little bit. Uh, but I do slow down some, and, and at least we can engage and ask questions. This isn't the greatest format for that. Uh, but we, we've covered the history. We've covered the doctrine of the Scripture. And so now we're really going to transition towards what most of the rest of this semester is going to be about. Uh, and that is, how do we actually do this? Uh, if we, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, sufficient uh, word of God, that it is clear to those who humble themselves and ask for spiritual eyes to read it, that we must know what it says, meaning it's necessary, um, that it was preserved through us by the passing on of faithful Old Testament and New Testament saints. And now we have uh, God has spoken the word to us. Uh, and that's great. And I hope everybody in this room, I hope those of you joining online, like you believe that, that that the word that we have today, we can believe and trust is God's word and know that it is God's word. Um, but believing it's God's word, knowing it's God's word, knowing that it's necessary, knowing that it's sufficient, knowing all of this is great and wonderful. But if we can't actually get to the real meaning of what a specific passage uh, is there for, then none of that really matters. Because we can say it's authoritative, but if we get the wrong meaning, then the meaning that we've derived from it was not an authoritative meaning, right? If we say that it is uh, necessary for life and godliness and for knowing the gospel and being saved, but we go to a passage and we get the wrong meaning out of that passage that's speaking about the gospel, then it doesn't really lead to salvation. Um, now, fortunately, where, what we dealt with as far as clarity last week is really where I want to start just briefly, um, and I'll probably reference this several more times over the coming weeks, uh, and, and that is none of this is, is human dependent, or at least fully human dependent, meaning it, it is, it's a requirement to be able to read the Bible through spiritual eyes. That the world, does, the world cannot comprehend. We looked at several verses last week that helped us with this. The world cannot comprehend uh, spiritual things because they're blinded by the enemy to spiritual things. But we who are in Christ have been made alive and we are now new creations and we now have spiritual eyes. The blinders have been taken off and, and we can see truth in Scripture for what it is, and we can know it. So while I'm going to talk about a lot of principles tonight, and we're going to talk, begin to talk about some very basic practices that we can put into place, recognize, number one, we need the Holy Spirit's help all along this, this way, because he's the one that gives us spiritual eyes so that we can see. He's the one that reveals all truth to us. He was the one that inspired the text to begin with, and so he's the one that helps us to understand the text um, so, so this is, we have to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit uh, for understanding of the text. So while some of these things, um, some of what I'm going to talk about tonight is not going to be difficult at all, but we're just starting to scratch the surface. But we're going to get into some weeks to come into, into more specific principles of genre interpretation and, and, and then meaning and application. And some of that's going to become a, maybe a little daunting to you if you've never thought about approaching the scripture in this way. Um, just remember, you, you've got the best helper available to you. 
You've got the presence and power of God alive in your life, indwelling within you, sealing you, and allowing you to understand things that you would not be able to understand if it weren't for his help. So that's kind of a two-sided coin that I think is so important to us. Number one, we can't do it without him, and we wouldn't want to do it without him because he's the one that's going to teach us. And so when this seems like it gets difficult, we seem like, well, I don't really fully understand that, or I don't really know how to do that, recognize that where I'm weak, he is strong, right? And praise the Lord. Um, and, and so our, our prayer should always be, Lord, give me eyes to, to see. This is, you know, if, if you've sat under my preaching on Sunday mornings for very long, uh, you've likely noticed that, that I often pray the same things on Sunday mornings before my sermon. I pray for myself and I pray for our congregation that the Lord would give us eyes to see truth in his word. Because we know it's truth. We affirm that it's truth. We recognize that this is the authoritative and errant word of God. But we still need our eyes open to it. And that, that then we would go a step further than that and that he would use that word to challenge and change our hearts. And so um, I don't just have this rote prayer that I pray every, uh, every Sunday. But it's generally very similar prayers because that's what we need to know God's word. It's the prayer that I pray when I sit down to begin to study uh, for sermons. It's the prayer, a similar prayer is something I would hope you would pray before you approach serious study of God's word uh, is that God would open your eyes uh, through the power of his Holy Spirit because he's the one that can help you see it. So as we transition to some of the more practical, um, what, where I want to start is providing you some definitions because I'm going to use some words that I've already used some words that you may not fully know the definition to. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've created your own definition. Do you do that? I do that sometimes. I hear a word enough that I just kind of make up a definition for it in my mind. And I think that's what that means. And then somebody says, what what does that word mean? You're like, I don't know. (laughs) But words have meaning, right? So I want to give you three words that I'm going to use a lot today and a lot over the next several weeks. Um, And and when I say this, this is what I want you to hear uh, when, when, when you hear that word. The first is the word hermeneutic or hermeneutics. It's spelled, by the way, H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S, hermeneutics. This is, these are short definitions. I tried to find as short of definitions as I could. This hermeneutics is the science and art by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. The two key words there is science and art. All right, hermeneutics is the science and art by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. So let's just talk about that definition for a minute so you can understand. It, hermeneutics is both science and art because it is, both the, it is both principle and practice. If it was only science, then we could develop some type of, you know, computer program or machine that we could put the biblical text into hit the button, crank the handle, and on the other side of the machine, out comes meaning, right? Because that's, if, it's, if, it's only, if it's only principles, you could just define all the principles and you could put it in and you could push it through and, and you could get meaning. But then that would be something that a lost person could do, right? That, that would be something that someone without spiritual eyes could do because they could take the same principles and derive the same meaning. So hermeneutics is a science, and these principles are going to be important, but it is also an art, that it is something that you, 
And art meaning not like art on the wall, but think when I think art in this case, I think something like dance, right? Nobody's or, or playing an instrument. Very few people start out in, in the arts very good at all at, their, at what they're trying to accomplish, right? We have in this room with us right now some very, very accomplished musicians, and they didn't start there, okay? They started learning what? Scales, right? They started learning, if, you, if it's a dancer, they started learning just like a basic box step, you know, or something like that. We, we learn these very basic principles. And then over time, as we practice those things, we become more proficient and more proficient and better and better and better and better at it because we've, we've practiced and we understand, uh, we understand the, the dance. There's actually a, a, a preaching book called Doctrine That Dances um, that talks a lot about the art because so many preaching books talk about the science of preaching. Um, but, but this book, um, written by a guy named Robert Smith, um, talks, uh, talks extensively in that book about how, how biblical interpretation and even the act of preaching, so beyond what I'm talking about tonight, is more than just a checklist. But it's this thing we get better and better and better at doing so it's, hermeneutics is both a science and an art um, by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. So we take what we know what we're supposed to do and what we've learned how to practice, and we meld those two things together uh, in getting the biblical uh, meaning. The second word I want to define for you is the word exegesis. Exegesis, that's spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Exegesis is the determination of the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context. The determination of the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context. So there's a lot of ways to do hermeneutics, but we're going to talk about a specific type of hermeneutic known as exegesis where we look at a text within its context, meaning its historical context and its literary context, and try to derive as best as we can original meaning from it. Now, in a moment, I'm gonna talk about some of the other ways, just briefly, some of the other ways that people attempt to do hermeneutics, and we're gonna see how some of those seem, are, at least from my perspective, and I hope you would agree that there's flaws in them, uh, and that the best way to determine meaning um, is through what is known as exegesis, where we look at a passage in its context, both historical and literary, to derive meaning from uh, that text. The third is exposition. Exposition. And that's a word that we use in regular, you probably don't use the word hermeneutics or exegesis very much. But the word exposition is a little more common of an English word, but not necessarily in the way that we're using it today. Um, exposition is the communication of the meaning of the text along with its relevance to present day hearers. So exposition is what I do on Sunday mornings. It's hopefully what your small group leader does. It's hopefully what you would do if you're talking to, even in an informal way, if you're helping someone else understand what the Bible says, then you're doing exposition. So if we're doing this right, um, we do exegesis to learn the meaning, and then we do exposition to explain the meaning, right? That's, that word means exposition 
uh, has the word expose as its root word, right? Because that's the whole goal is to expose the meaning. Um, so, so hermeneutics is the general practice. It's the science and art. Exegesis is how we're practicing it. Original meaning uh, in its historical and literary context. And exposition is our attempt to then communicate that, which is what I try to do. Uh, which is why this, the type of sermons that I preach are known as expository sermons. They're called expository sermons because they're designed to re- reveal the, the original meaning of the text um, uh, as, as it's found in its historical and literal context, okay? Now, we do recognize that th- there are other ways that Christians, both throughout history and in modernity, have approached the um, science and art of hermeneutics. Now, there's, there's more than what I'm going to tell you about. Um, I'm going to tell you about four. Uh, th- the first three are ones that we're not practicing, um, and, and some have fallen out of favor. Some are more popular than others. The reason that I want to explain this to you uh, is because you may find yourself doing this some, and if so, then what I hope you'll walk away with today is a challenge to approach the Bible differently but it's also going to open your eyes a little bit. It, in the question and answer time, we had a question about um, uh, prosperity gospel, and I said I was a prosperity doctrine and, and preaching and churches, and I said I was going to address this a little bit. Uh, we're going to we're going to get to one of these, and you're going to kind of see where some of those people may um, where they may fall in a different hermeneutic than us, and why they end up in a place where we would say uh, that they're doctrine, doctrinally inaccurate, right? So. Uh, so let's look at the three, first off, that aren't the ones that, that we use. These are three, these are major, herme, major hermeneutic methods or major methods of hermeneutics, however you want to uh, phrase that, all right? The first is the allegorical method. This is not super popular um, anymore, but it was very popular in the early church. You have to remember the church has existed for 2,000 years and for the first uh, few hundred, maybe two to three hundred years uh, of the early church, that's that early, when we say early church period, we're talking about everything in the first uh, three to four centuries. You have the New Testament period in the first century, and then so really the, the two and a half, three centuries that follow that. Um, and, and what was the greatest influence, let's see if you remember your ancient history, what was the greatest philosophical influence on uh, Greek culture? Plato, right? Plato says a name. Even if you didn't know that, you know, you've, you've heard of Plato, right? And the, what, what's known as the Platonic worldview it is something that always is looking for a deeper meaning. This is what, this was, you can, you can summarize all of Plato in this, that there's always a deeper meaning. That's what Plato believed, that everything in life had a deeper meaning. Relationships had a deeper meaning. People had a different meaning. The sun, moon, stars, had a, like everything, even literature had a deeper, d- deeper meaning. So that's the dominant philosophical opinion of the day and so what do people that are influenced by that do? Well, here's what they did. They looked at stories in scripture and attempted to find meaning everywhere, right? And the, so what we call that as far as a, a literary device is called allegory. So an allegory is a story that everything has a meaning. Everything represents something, right? So what they would do is they would take 
literal events, like narrative events in the scripture, and reduce them to allegories. They wouldn't deny that they happened, but they would say that, that, the, that the event isn't what's important, right? So uh, let's take an event from the New Testament, Jesus walking on the water, all right? Um, they would take that, and I don't know all of their allegorical positions on this, but the allegorical method of hermeneutics would take that event and say, okay, that event happened, but the fact that it happened isn't what's important. What's important is that everything in that event represents something. So the boat represents the church, and Peter represents this, and Jesus represents this, and the waves represent this, and everything represents something. Well, there are allegories in Scripture, all right? But they're few and far between, folks. There's not a lot of it, all right? And certainly not in narrative text. The reason that we have the narrative text of Scripture is because the authors were wanting us to know events that took place, and they recorded events that took place intentionally. Like, there were, there's meaning behind those events, but that meaning is very rarely, if ever, allegorical, all right? It, these things don't always uh, represent something. Some of the parables are allegorical. Um, for instance, Jesus, is, is, Jesus gives allegorical meaning to some of his parables. So we know some of them are because Jesus said that they, they were. Um, but the, the literal events that happen in the Bible are not to be read that way. This is not a common method of reading, but it was a method that was common amongst early church fathers because of the influence of Plato uh, and that uh, Greco-Roman uh, philosophical way of thinking. Now we get to modernity, uh, and we have, we have what arose out of the Enlightenment, which was known as the critical method. And we really could say the critical methods, because there are multiple methods, and I'm not going to talk about all of them uh, here, but there, were, there are multiple methods that arose out of the Enlightenment period that really found popularity in uh, what's known as uh, classical liberalism, uh, theological liberalism. Uh, this is still the way that many um, mainline Protestant, um, more uh, liberal theologically, theological bent churches uh, would ascribe to one or more of these critical methods. Um, all of the critical methods, while they're different, they approach the scripture. So for instance, some of them look at the, sort, the back sources uh, so let me just give you an example out of, out of Genesis, since that's where I'm currently preaching on Sunday morning. Um, uh, the, what, what's known as source criticism of Genesis looks not at the actual text of Genesis, but where, that, where the source for that came from, right? And, and what they say is there's actually four sources, and that each one of those sources has its own uh, kind of point, and then eventually the Jewish people took those four sources and mashed them together. They do this. This is also very popular with the Gospels that there's multiple sources and they get mashed together, and then so we get this meaning over here and this meaning over here. But it's more derived from the source itself than the text. Um, form uh, criticism is is talking about the not just the literary genre, but but the form itself that the, the scripture takes and that there's meaning derived from the form. But all of this, no matter, and there's probably a dozen or more of these that, that are part of this critical method um, that are embraced in varying levels by different people, but they all have their, they all have the same presupposition and that's naturalism. They're all seeking to find meaning outside of the inspiration of scripture. So, Meaning's not found in 
the Holy Spirit inspiring this biblical author to write this biblical text to this specific group of people, right? They're, find, they're seeking to find meaning somewhere else because ultimately they're going to deny inspiration. And so uh, while there are, while some of the critical methods can be used as learning tools uh, and can be helpful, um, that's not ultimately where we're going to find meaning um, because it's, it's uh, ultimately going to deny uh, in, inspiration of the text. The third is far more popular in postmodern society. So critical methods are still popular today. They rose to popularity during the modern age, you know, so during the uh, early, mid-1900s. Um, the late 1900s through today, uh, really this postmodern society that we live in, and this is known as the devotional method. I talked a little bit about this last week um, and told you that we were going to come back to it. And the devotional method says there's no such thing as timeless truth, but I'm only seeking to look for a truth that works for me. So the devotional method says there's there's no actual meaning in the text at all. That without the reader, there's no meaning. That the reader comes to the text and finds meaning, even bringing meaning to it. So the devotional method is far more interested in application instead of meaning. The end goal of the devotion is, is what do I need to do, right? I'm, I'm in need of something and you get, give it to me. And so I said last week, the most dangerous question that we can ask in uh, Bible study is what does this text mean to you? Because when we start asking the question, what does this text mean to you? Uh, here's what we're doing. We're doing the devotional method of hermeneutics where we're saying, all right, what do you need this to mean? And what are, what, have, what are your presuppositions and your experiences and your current state of mind? Uh, what, is, what do you bring to this? And then walk away from it, right? This is, this is unfortunately really popular today. It's a really popular way for people to preach. What this does, I gave you a definition for exegesis, right? Finding the meaning of the text in the historical and literal context, What the devotional method does is it practices the opposite of exegesis, which is known as eisegesis, right? And that is pulling out a verse, pulling out a passage out of its historical grammatical context and assigning meaning to it, So it's, I, I want this to be about this and, or I'm going to the Bible looking for this kind of encouragement and I find it there, right? Yes. Yes. So for those that are online, because they're not going to be able to hear you, uh, it was asked, is this manipulating the scripture to fit your own personal narrative? Absolutely it is. Now, you're going to see here in a little while, we all bring presuppositions to the text. We can't get over bringing presuppositions to the text, but we can't allow our presuppositions to ascribe meaning to the text. And that's what the devotional method is. It's, it's intentionally going and saying, if I don't come to the text, there is no meaning. It's saying there's no original meaning. What, what, mean, what is meaningful is what I say is meaningful. Well, at the end of the day, then that means that what I say is meaningful could be the exact opposite of what you say is meaningful, and we can both be right, which is what postmodernity is about anyway. Postmodernism is about relative truth. So you see that here, right? 
This is all about relative truth, that I can have my truth and you can have your truth and somebody else can have theirs. And we could all derive that from the same part of the Bible and, uh, and, and all equally be true. Well, that's hogwash, all right? Uh, the Bible means what the Bible means. So the fourth method is the one that we seek to apply. It's the one that does good exegesis. This is the historical grammatical method. The historical grammatical method approaches the text assuming that the plain sense meaning is the one that should be taken. Meaning this, in general, we are going to read the text as it is written. And if it tells us something happened, we're going to believe that that thing actually happened. Unless, and this is important, unless there are clues used within the within the context of the passage, used within the genre that that, that, that book is a part of or that section of the book uh, would be included in, if there are clues that's, that point to some type of symbolic language, some type of allegorical language, like the easiest ones are when Jesus says, this represents this, this represents that, this represents, we go, okay, right? But none of the perils, parables were ever intended to be taken literally. None of those events actually happened. Because they're parables, they're stories with a, with a meaning. But the, the narrative events of the, of the Bible we're going to read literally. Um, the, uh, the historic events, uh, the, the historical rec- record of the Bible we're going to read literally. The instructions of the Bible, like the instructions of Paul and the other apostles to the New Testament church, we're, we're going to read literally. Uh, even some prophecy we're going to read literally. Not all, and there's a lot of debate, and we're going to spend a week on this talking about how should we think literally, literally or, or figuratively, symbolically about uh, Old and New Testament prophecy. Uh, but in the main, we're looking for the plain reading of the text. We do apply what is known as textual criticism, where we're asking certain critical questions about the text, about the context, the surrounding verses, how it was written, why it was written, when it was written, who it was written from, who it was written to. We're going to employ, the, employ those questions to discover the, as best we can, to discover the original meaning. So as we talk over the next several weeks about, as we take a deeper dive into uh, some of these genres and some of this practice, this is the method that we are going to constantly seek to use, the historical grammatical method, because it is the one that affirms that there is one meaning of the text and that, that the text means what the original author meant for it to mean, and that's what we're seeking to know. All right? Questions? I'm going to give you some. I'm going to give you two other categories. I'm trying to explain so you can see some of you like taking notes. I'm going to give you some basic principles of hermeneutics, and then I'm going to give you some basic practices. All right. So these are some of the principles that we need to have in our minds. So think with me again. Um, it's a science and an art. Right. We're going to talk about some of the science first. Then I'm going to talk about some of the art. All right. So let's start with science. There's six of these. Uh, if you want to number your page. The first, and I'm actually going to go to some place in the Bible and show you why this is important. Okay, I hope this works. In my mind, these all work. But um, The first is this. this. This really aren't in any specific order so much. Basic principles. Number one, context is king. When you're trying to determine what a Bible passage means, the surrounding verses, the surrounding 
passage. You understand what I mean when I say passage, right? A passage is a section of scripture that all is intended to go together. A verse is one verse. A passage is a passage, chapter, book, however you think about it. Some, some passages extend more than one chapter. Some are less than one chapter, right? But the surrounding verses, the surrounding passages, the rest of that book, all of that matters as far as it relates to determining the meaning of that text. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, I'm going to actually give you examples of how we get this wrong. By showing you how we get it wrong, I hope I'll be able to show you why it's important. I'm going to take the lowest hanging fruit that I can find, okay? The lowest hanging fruit on this is Philippians 4, all right? In Philippians 4, probably the most, well, maybe the second most misquoted verse. The most misquoted verse of all time is judge not lest you be judged. I'm not going to talk about that one today. But this is, you know, every Christian athlete's favorite verse right here, right? Um, Philippians 4, uh, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, if we do eisegesis, if we do devotional reading, if we just take that out, I've read that verse, and I'm like, oh, I can do anything. As long as I'm in Jesus, I can do anything, right? Chris could go play in the NBA, right? Um, he said it, I didn't, all right? I was just repeating it, right? We, I can do anything that I want to do. Well, you know that's, I mean, most of you I know fairly well and your students well enough of the scriptures to know that's a really bad take of what that means because when we read the verses around it and not even like a lot of verses around it, if we just go up three verses, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am be content. I know how to, to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have lived uh, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who, who strengthens me. Paul is specifically talking about being able to uh, be a witness for the gospel in, during good times and during bad times. When it's persecution, when there's not persecution. When food's prevalent and when food's not prevalent, right? That's what the verse means. The verse can't mean anything else. No matter how hard you want it to mean something else, it can't mean anything else because it means what the guy who wrote it used it the way that he used it in that context. Now, that's a really easy example, all right? Number one, it's really low-hanging fruit because it's, it's, um, uh, it's one that's so often taken out of context that most people that have been reading the Bible, been around churches very long, recognize uh, that that's so often taken out of context. But it's also one that the immediate context is just super clear. That's not always going to be the case. Sometimes as a good student of the Bible, you're going to have to work really hard to understand the context. And we're going to get into that later. Again, we're doing a, we're doing a really surface dive right now. We're, going to, we're scratching the surface. We're going to go much deeper in weeks to come. Um, sometimes you've got to do a lot of work on context. But this is just a really good example of instead of just reading that one verse, maybe I ought to read the five verses, and then those five verses are going to tell me what that, what that one verse means. By the way, you ought to just read those five verses. You ought to read the whole chapter and then you ought to read the whole book and read some of the other things we're going to talk about here in a minute, okay? So, it, but, but context is king. That's number one. Number two, scripture does not contradict itself. It's another herm second hermeneutical principle. If you read something in scripture and you say, if I believe that for how I think it, what I think it means right now, 
it means that there's a bunch of other Bible that's wrong. Guess who's wrong? You, okay? Because the Bible's not going to tell you one thing somewhere and one thing somewhere else. And I recognize that some people want to go and say, well, doesn't the Old Testament say this and the New Testament say yes? Yes. But when we understand the progression of the new covenant, we understand what was happening in the Old Testament and the new, we recognize it's not contradicting one another. It's, it's literally fulfilling one another, okay? But, but the Bible, we're talking doctrine here. The Bible's not going to give you a doctrinal principle in one place and a doctrinal principle in another, and those two things collide. We need to be able to determine meaning in such a way that, that these things are going to make sense. So let me show you a place where if we were to read one verse, uh, we, would, uh, we may walk away with a wrong understanding. Turn to Romans chapter 11. If you have your Bible and you want to, I'm going to read it. But in Romans chapter 11... Um, Really interesting chapter, just the whole chapter of Romans 11 is about God's relationship with ethnic Israel and with the church and, and how the church has been uh, this wild olive shoot that's been grafted into the root, which the root, by the way, is not ethnic Israel. The root is the promise of God um, and that, that much of ethnic Israel has now been cleaned off of the tree. Those branches have been cut off and that tree is now continuing to grow but that God is, is going to continue to save Israelites. And Paul says, look at me, I'm one of them. God saved me, right? Um, but then we get, to, we get to verse 26. And in Romans 11, verse 26, um, we read this. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So if we, if we read that, and we take all Israel to mean ethnic Israel, which he is, he is not, anytime... Just because we see the term Israel doesn't always mean in the New Testament that they're talking about ethnic Israel, but Paul was talking about ethnic Israel in, uh, in Romans 11. So does that mean, I mean, all means all, doesn't it? So it, does this mean that all Jews are going to be saved? I've had people make this statement to me. You know, the Bible says all Jews are going to be saved. Folks, the Bible does not say that all Jews are going to be saved. Jesus looked at a crowd full of Jews and said, repent or likewise perish. And so if Paul is saying that all Jews are going to be saved, he is directly contradicting Jesus who said, repent or likewise perish, all right? So it can't mean that all Jews are going to be saved. That's not what it means. But when we, take, when we step back to the previous principle, we take the, con we take the context, uh, we take the rest of the Bible, what the rest of the Bible is saying, these big principles that we know to be true, that we're, that, that we're already convinced of in our minds. We say, nope, he can't be saying that all of Israel is going to be saved. So this has to have something else. Really, really what Paul's saying here is God's not completely done with Israel. And there's going to be, uh, there's going to be many, many Israelites that are a part of this. Um, and uh, I'm going to leave off whether this is projecting something towards the end of time. It could be, I'll say it like that. It could be projecting something towards the end of time about um, a, um, a revival amongst ethnic Israel uh, towards the end of time. I don't think it necessarily is, but it, but it certainly could be. Um, but it doesn't mean that all Israelites are going to be saved. That was the point. So context is king. Scripture never con contradicts itself. Number three, you have to acknowledge your presuppositions. A presupposition is something you bring to the text. It's your, it's the things that you already believe to be true, whether consciously or subconsciously. So we bring some good presuppositions to the text. For instance, I did that, right? I brought the presupposition that only people who are in faith in Jesus, who come to Jesus through faith and repentance are saved. I brought that presupposition to the text of Romans 11. 
I think that's a good, because that's what the Bible teaches. Like clearly the Bible teaches that. So I bring that to the text. Um, the Bible presupposes the existence of God, right? Even there's presuppositions in the Bible. The Bible begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, it presupposes that the, that the hearers, readers of the text know this, there is a God. It doesn't begin with the arguments for God. It begins with the presupposition that God exists. We do that too. Doctrinal presuppositions, biblical presuppositions, but we also bring things that we have just been conditioned to believe, things that, things that seem true to us uh, because of the culture that we live in, right? So our nurture, the way that we were brought up, the, um, the kind of culture and society that we were brought up in matters. So listen, it, it's just natural to recognize that someone that grew up in Western civilization, particularly, let's just say Americans, are going to read the Bible with different presuppositions than those who grew up in an African context or uh, a Chinese context or even a South American context. They, they're going to have different cultural understandings and, and different ways that they have been conditioned from birth, just like we've been conditioned of birth, from birth to believe and to think certain ways. And so we're going to bring those processes to the text. Let me show you a place where I think we do that. Second Thessalonians chapter three. In second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul's talking about the fact that he didn't take money from the churches but was bivocational, that he worked, he worked as a tent maker, that the people that traveled with him, they worked hard, they preached hard, right? Like, I don't think Paul slept very much. Um, but he says in verse 310, uh, for even when we were with you, uh, we would give you this commandment. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, Americans are very individualistic, Right? You know, we, we've been conditioned throughout our lives to believe you work hard for what you have. Uh, you know, it, it, as long as you work hard, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps, you can achieve anything, right? The American dream, all of this stuff. So politicians, particularly politicians on the right, love quoting this verse, right? You start talking about entitlements or some other things, and it's not uncommon to hear politicians will say, well, you know, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Folks, that's not what, like, Paul wasn't talking about that. <laughs> that wasn't what he was saying. But that's often how Americans read it. Because we've, we've been conditioned in this individualistic, Paul's talking about people, he, he's using an extreme to talk about people who are busybodies. If you read the, the full context, he's talking about people who just went from one place to another, making themselves busy by not actually doing anything. And uh, he, he's not making this general statement that should be applied to all of culture, right? This isn't intended to be taken as like a moral law of God, which is so often how Americans think about it, is if you don't work, you don't eat. Well, does that apply to 90-year-olds, right? Does that apply to people who are handicapped? Does that apply to people? Like how far are we willing to go with that if that's part of the moral law of God, which is how Americans so often think about it because of the way we've been conditioned, all right? So we have to recognize our own presuppositions. We have to know what we're bringing to the text, good, and things that maybe we ought to work to think differently on or, or put aside, all right? Number four, the natural reading is probably correct. 
except when it isn't. <laughs> and now we've already talked about the historical grammatical method and that, that the plain sense meaning is the one that we're looking for and that there are going to be clues. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to, I, I, want to, I wanted to put that both there and here uh, because I do want you to have this as a basic principle because most of the Bible is intended for you just to read it Understand that it's telling you something that happened and it's telling you something that happened on purpose because there's meaning there. It doesn't tell you everything that happened. You know, John says, we didn't tell you everything Jesus did. If we did, it wouldn't fill, it'd fill every book in the world, right? Um, you know, we're, we're about to start with the life of Abraham this Sunday in, in Genesis. We don't get everything that happened with Abraham. We get everything that, that we needed to know about Abraham, everything that has meaning for us. Um, to, to know, and we're supposed to read those and, and understand them, that they happen. So most of the Bible we read literally, but there are times that we shouldn't, and we can actually get in trouble. I don't have an example of this, um, but there are times that we shouldn't, and genre is going to be able to play a big part of that. So in the, that's why in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some of the biblical genres, and I'm going to give you some more detailed principles of interpreting things like poetry. You know, we don't interpret poetry in our modern society literally, and yet we so often try to do so in the, in the scriptures, right? When, when it's not intended to be taken that way. But you begin with the natural reading. What's, what's the natural reading of the text? And then start to ask some questions about it from there. Oftentimes the natural, I mean, the natural reading of poetry is not literal. The natural reading of poetry is poetic, right? If, so if we read it right, we are reading it uh, naturally. Number five, what the author originally meant is the meaning. Now we talked about this too with the grammatical, uh, historical grammatical method. Um, the text can't mean something that it never meant. So if it didn't mean that, then it doesn't mean it now. And this is a challenge to people, particularly as, as we start thinking about um, prophetic uh, writings that there, there, there certainly can be futuristic meanings of a text. And I'll often, particularly when I was preaching in Luke, I, I mean, I'll often talk about now, not yet, meaning that, that the text had a specific meaning that shows us a, a more complete picture later, right? That, that, that we, know something, we know something in part now, we'll know it in full later, and that the text can speak to both of those, but there's still just this one, there's this one shared meaning. But we can't take what's happening now and go back to the text and say, oh, that text now means this. So if I had made you mad yet, I will here. So let's go to 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. 2 Chronicles 7, verse, verse 14. You probably know this verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, heal their land. Folks, this was written 3,000 years ago. Do you know what did not exist 3,000 years ago? America. So do you know what this verse isn't about? America. In no way are we supposed to read that verse and I, I keep seeing people post online um, pictures of that verse in their Bibles colored in with the American, like red, white, and blue, like colored an American flag over it. Uh, it, uh, it makes me sick. 
Listen to me. That verse has me. It's beautiful. It's scripture. It still has application today, but it's not about America. He's writing to a specific people. This is in the dedication of the temple during the time of Solomon. And here's what God recognizes. His people were kind of wayward. They have a tendency to, to wander. And here's what God says. When you wander, I'm going to send things like pestilence, plagues, famine to draw you back. And you're going you're gonna, to, the same pattern that we're talking about in Genesis, right? Sin, judgment, grace. That's what this is about. It's about the Old Testament people of God, Israel, which has no correlation to America whatsoever. America is not the new Israel. Um, Sin, judgment, grace, right? And then I'm going to call you back. And when I call you back, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to heal your land. And the land represented something. The land represented the promise. Land no longer represents promise to us, right? Because we're not citizens of this earth. We're citizens where? Heaven. So if, if there's any correlation at all, it has, it's no correlation between nations. It's correlation between the Old Testament people of God, Israel, and the New Testament people of God, the church, all right? So if there's anybody that needs to call to repentance, it's us. But the, but the healing that we will receive is not the economy will get better, okay? Our promises are in heaven. The fulfillment of that's far greater, right? So because... When it was originally written, I had no clue that, it, that America would exist. It can't be directly applied to America today. But the, the principle still remains. There's still truth there about God and his relationship with his people, um, but not as like a, na- a call for national revival. Uh, it was a specific call for a specific uh, people. Number six, don't develop doctrine from uh, uh, obscure passages. You just got to be really careful when you run across something in Scripture and you're like, oh, I've never seen that before. That's interesting. And the next thing we do, we build this whole little world around this really interesting thing. That's how you end up in a cult, all right? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 29 is a great example of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 29, I'm not going to read it for the second time. I got 10 minutes to go through this next part. Uh, Paul talks about uh, baptism for the dead. And we have no, I'm just going to tell you, like, I have no idea what that means. Um, he's not telling anybody to baptize for the dead. He's just recognizing that there were some Corinthian people, very possibly even Corinthian Christians who were baptizing for the dead. And Paul uses it as an example in the, midst of, in the midst of talking about resurrection. So the point is resurrection. But there are people that don't want to focus on a little narrow passage like that and be like, oh, we should start baptizing for the dead. Which, by the way, some cults do. Again, that's how you end up in a cult, right? Um, so, so don't take these little obscure things and blow them up and make them these really big things. Let the big things be the big things, right? Uh, orthodoxy is important. I, I, I had a seminary professor that would always say it like this. If, if, if you think you found something new in the Bible, you're wrong. <laughs> you're you're, you've, you've gotten it wrong because everybody else hadn't been wrong for 2,000 years and now all of a sudden, oh, you know, Ryan's right. That's just not the way Bible interpret, interpretation works, all right? So those, that's, the, that's the, um, the science. Let's talk about the art for a few minutes. Basic practices. This is, what I'm talking about here is just you and your study of Scripture, whether you wake up early in the morning, you do it on your lunch break, you do it before you go to bed at night, however it is that you structure your Bible reading, I want to give you some encouragements on 
how, the practice of doing it, that I think is going to make you better at getting to the meaning. The first is this. And by the way, I'm probably going to challenge some of, I've, I've probably already challenged some of the ways you think. I'm, I may challenge some of your practices here. Um, again, th- this is a dance. You may learn how to do it a different way, um, but I think this is going to help us, okay? So the first, I have five of these. Number one, read one book of the Bible at a time. I know there are Bible reading. I, I, I don't ever read through the whole Bible in a year. I've done it before. I don't make that a regular practice for me because it's to read through the whole Bible in a year, you have to read a lot of Bible. And what all I'm doing is all I'm doing is getting through a bunch of information. I'm not actually digesting anything, right? Maybe you can digest more than me, but I, I can't. And then some Bible reading plans have you read a part of the Old Testament, you know, a Psalm, a Proverb, and then part of the New Testament. Man, that would just really get confusing to me in a hurry because we're in four different contexts. And so then you're really going to struggle to, um, to get meaning. So here, here's what I think you ought to do. Pick up the book of the Bible you want to read and study that book until you're done. And then this is, this is the way that I do it. I mean, it, I know it sounds kind of simple. I just pick one I want to read. And it's not the one I'm preaching, by the way. I pick something different. I, 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 I study to preach and I study to study. Um, and uh, I, I study a book of the Bible and, and I just kind of kind of read through it, right? I make my marks, I do my things. But one book of the Bible at a time keeps you grounded in, in a specific context. Number two, read at least one entire section during each sitting. Now, when we get into genres, we're going to talk about how we can determine um, sections of the Bible. Um, in, for instance, the Psalms is one of the easiest places. In just about every case, save a couple examples, um, a psalm is a section, right? Psalm 1 is a section. You make an argument that the section's actually Psalm 1 and 2, but that's, that may be, be a bad example. Um, sometimes a chapter is a section. Sometimes a paragraph is a section. Um, when, you, when you're in Old Testament narrative, read until the scene changes, right? It's so often marked with the word and. That they'll start with the word and, telling you that they've gone from one thing to the next. But, but look, for, like, look for the word and at the beginning of a paragraph. It's some, but sometimes it's in narrative. It'll be more than one paragraph, but it'll be a scene change. It'll be a psalm. It'll be a collection of proverbs. Uh, it'll be with, with epistles. It's so often just a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs. Sometimes you're by the, the paragraph dividers in your Bible, you know, I've got paragraph dividers in my Bible. Those, by the way, like this is just open to Second Peter you know, and so it says, greeting, making your call and election sure. You know, that's not Bible, right? Like that's some guy here in America that wrote that in there. Um, but it can be helpful, but sometimes they don't always get it right. So you want to you be careful. But read one book at a time and read at least one section at a time because that's going to keep you within the context as best you can. Examine the relationship of the passage working from nearest to farthest away when it comes to context. So here's the way that you want to think about a passage. So you read, let's say you're reading, I'm, I'm open in 2 Peter, right? And I'm going to read what's, what Peter has to write about false prophets and false teachers in chapter 2. That that's where I am. Well, I've already read chapter 1. Uh, one of the practices that I'll have is I'll read through the whole book first, just kind of quickly. So I'll know what the whole book's going to say. I kind of get the context. Then I go back and break it apart and, and study it in, in sections. 
Um, or if you've read through the Bible several times or read through these books, you may not need to do that because you know what, what's coming next, right? Um, but I'm going to study that. Well, I'm going to study that, uh, and the direct context is the most important. So what's the passages right before it say? What does the passages right after it say? Then you branch out a little bit more. Think of these kind of as concentric circles, right? You've got the, you've got the text. You've got the passages right around it. You've got the book that it's contained in. Right? So then all of Second Peter speaks to, that, speaks to that passage. Then all of the New Testament, or you could think about it like this, all of what Peter wrote in First and Second Peter, all of the New Testament, then all of the Bible, right? So we start closest to biggest. If you have a Bible that has cross-references, that's a huge help when you start looking outside of the immediate context. Um, so this Bible has cross-references, you know, they're, they're here in the middle and some of them are down at the bottom. My study Bible has those too. Uh, and they just be really helpful for you to, to say, okay, th- this is saying to me that false prophets are also talked about, you know, Paul talked about them over here, Jesus talked about them over here, and I can go look and see what other things were said about false prophets. We want to start really close. So if Peter's writing about false prophets here and he also wrote about false prophets in 1 Peter, what Peter has to say in 1 Peter about false prophets is more important for the actual meaning of 2 Peter than what Paul wrote about them. Not that what Paul wrote about them is wrong, but the closer in context it is, the more helpful that deriving that meaning is going to be. We kind of work our way out, all right? So we're one book at a time or one section at a time, and we examine the contextual relationships from nearest to farthest. Uh, number four, we look for logical scenes. Uh, for logical sequences of ideas, themes, patterns. You hear me on Sunday mornings talk about patterns a lot, and I do that. I'm so repetitious with that because I'm trying to teach good Bible study, right? So the sin, judgment, grace pattern of Genesis, the high and low pattern of Genesis that we're really going to start seeing a lot of when we get into the life of Abraham over the next several weeks, high, low, high, low, high, low, you know? Um, watch for those patterns. Make notes of those patterns. Watch for ideas, right? These, particularly in the epistles, some of these same ideas will show up within a book, within a section. Um, these themes will show up. You know, so if you read through Second Peter, for instance, and you miss, and if you just if you studied all through Second Peter, and you missed that Peter was progressing through, not directly but kind of indirectly progressing through the stages of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, you may have missed something from Peter, right? Because Peter's kind of talking to us about these ways of thinking about salvation in this letter. And he addresses all three of those things in varying places within the letter. So you want to look at those themes, make notes, these patterns. Wait, these things show up. You're reading John, right? And John's huge on patterns. So either it's the gospel of John or... The, the letters of John or the, the re- revelation of John, pattern is, pattern is so important there, right? It's, it's all about these cyclical patterns. In the Gospel of John, it's about the cyclical patterns of the festivals. Um, in First uh, John, it's this constant like spiral going up about what does it really mean to be in Christ and we love one another and we do these things right in Christ. And, and uh, the revelation of John, it's these cyclical patterns of how God overcomes evil just over and over and over in this, in this cyclical sense. So we want to make, make notes of those kind of things. And we'll, when we talk about genre, we'll look at some ways to do that. Last, use reliable sources for information and to check your conclusion. 
So don't start with what somebody else thinks. Don't start with the study Bible notes. Don't start with the commentary. Don't start with, um, you know, Andy Stanley's preaching or John MacArthur's preaching or Ryan Bryce's preaching, okay? You're a Christian indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Read your Bible and, and do good study and come to a conclusion and then maybe go check the study Bible and see. The study Bible is certainly going to help you with context. The commentary is certainly going to help you with author. It's going to help you with people. He's going to help you with the who, what, when, where, why, right? It's going to help you with those things. And they're going to help you with meaning. But, but you want to see how much of that you can get to on your own and then check it. Because again, if you come up with something that nobody else has ever thought of, you're wrong. Go back and try again and, um, and, and view that. So, so I get this question a lot. Like, what commentaries do you suggest? Because uh, if you've ever been in my office, I've got a lot of books. A lot of them are commentaries. I read a lot. For Genesis, I have about 10 or 12 that I go through every week uh, and in preparation for preaching. And many of those I would not recommend to you because I just I wouldn't. You, you need to have a certain level of understanding on certain things to, to be able to, to read through some of those. Some of you could, and you could get there at some point, but it may not be useful to you. But this series, I think, would be highly useful to you. And so when people ask me about commentary series, I always recommend this. Um, this commentary series is known as the Christ-Centered Exposition. That's one of the books that we use, or one of the, de- one of the definitions that we gave. And all of the books are entitled Exalting Jesus in something. Right? This is Exalting Jesus in Matthew. It's, uh, the series is edited by David Platt, who pastors up in uh, D.C., Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary, and Tony Morita, who pastors in Raleigh, North Carolina. And they invited really great people uh, to write these books along with them. They're very affordable, like sometimes like $9.99 affordable, which I think is a steal for what you get. The most expensive of these is 15 bucks, anywhere from 10 to 15 bucks, okay, like on Amazon. And so if you want to say, okay, I'm going to study the book of Matthew, what I would do is sit down and read the introduction to this, which is going to tell you some things about the book. You could also do that in your study Bible, which is going to tell you about Matthew and about who he wrote it to and kind of why he wrote it, what some of the major themes are. So you can be ready to look for those things. Sit down, read a section, circling words, making your notes, coming to, coming to meaning, and then turn to this and Read in here. It progresses all the way through. Read in here. It's easy to read. It's intended to be accessible for all Christians. It's not intended to be like this pastoral thing. And then it even gives you some questions about application that you could ask at the end. They kind of help you think, okay, what am I now supposed to believe or do uh, because of it? So this series right here would be a great, reliable source. Uh, not all sources out there are reliable. Not all internet sources are great, right? Some of them are good. Um, but not all of them are great. But for 10 bucks to know, to have a really good resource on the gospel of Matthew would be, would be really good. Uh, I'm out of time. Do we have any questions just quickly that you have for the whole group that you want to ask before I close us? That went fast. Maybe it didn't for you. I I didn't know if I was going to have enough stuff to talk about tonight. Here, here we did. I never have that problem. Well, I know she's here. She's keeping the nursery. Um, all right, let me pray for us. Father, we, we're again uh, in awe that you would speak to us, uh, that, you, that you love us to give us your spirit, to reveal your word to us. Help us to become good students, men and women of the word, we pray. Um, 
not just cursory readers, uh, not, not bringing our own meaning to the text and making something mean so that it's never meant, but that we would actually find your authoritative meaning so that we can know and believe uh, and be made in the image of your son, we pray. Um, thank you for being with us tonight, and I pray that this God would, uh, would bear fruit uh, in the lives of those who participated here and online with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you that joined us online, thank you so much for doing that, whether live or you're watching this recorded. Uh, we look forward to having you with us uh, either in person or online next week.